0: Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on August 8th, 2017 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall. The theme for
1: the evening is On the Run. Mm-hmm. MB! <laughs> Welcome to the stage! So...
0: My family all entirely voted for Trump. I, was, I sprung from the loins of a core Trump supporter family, and um, I got away as soon as I could. I went to New York City, and I was gonna make my living um, as a writer and become famous, and instead I was typing and filing in the basement of a, of a brownstone. But it seemed to me that, the, that New York City was, was basically dying of AIDS at that time, and I got very involved in AIDS activism, and I also um, worked as a medical writer eventually um, for an AIDS organization. And there I met a woman who was very sophisticated, an AIDS lobbyist, and she basically told me that she was responsible for getting Bill Clinton elected. There's no way that she was responsible for getting Bill Clinton elected, but I was enthralled with her, and she took me to Puerto Rico, which was the first time I had ever really been anywhere in my life. And we went on this beautiful, we drove all the way around the island, beautiful Puerto Rico, and one night we were on the beach together, and we were strolling, and she was pontificating and saying all sorts of really fantastic politically smart things that I had never heard before, having come from Trump Nation. Uh, so as we were walking suddenly there was this noise from behind us and we turned around and there was a man with a ski mask and two really long kitchen knives and he was pointing them suddenly at this AIDS lobbyist who had taken me on this wonderful vacation and stroll on the beach at night now I knew that I was never, ever gonna have what he wanted to do happen to me again. So she started holding his hands. We were talking to him in Spanish. And he kept saying, el piso, el piso, get on the floor, get on the ground to me. And he had his knives to her stomach. And she kept saying to me, no, no, don't get on the ground. Whatever you do, do not get on the ground go run for help. And we're talking in English because he doesn't understand English. And we're talking to him in Spanish sort of frantically telling him that that, that he wasn't going to get away with it and he should really rethink this whole career that he had going. Um, So I finally said, okay, I'm getting on the ground. And I turned around and there as I was getting down did I see this incredibly glinting beautiful orange label of a very expensive bottle of champagne, which I had never tasted nor seen before in my life, but the sophisticated lobbyist girlfriend had bought for us to drink. So, in a moment of I don't know where it came from, I turned around, grabbed the bottle, and whacked this guy on the head. (laughs) Have you ever heard a grandfather clock strike one? I do because we had an ancient one in, in our house where I grew up, and that's what it sounded like. Gong, 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 gong! He dropped his knives, he wobbled, the girlfriend stepped away, and he started to run. Now, I became suddenly unhinged, and I ran after that f- motherfucker. <laughs> As fast as I could, and I was screaming in Spanish with the bottle in my hand, never again. Nunca, nunca. I was screaming at him. I'm running. He's running. I've got the bottle. I want to hit him again. Very quietly from afar, I hear my name being called by the lobbyist. Mary Beth. Mary Beth. I realize I have gone completely mad, so I lope back around, come back to her, and she's standing there like, you never run after the rapist (laughs) once you get away from him. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, okay. And she was like, let me show you something. And she lifts up her shirt, and she has the teeniest, easiest, tiniest, there's not even any blood cut on her belly. She's like, I could have been killed. And I was like, did you just see what I did? I saved us. She's like, I could have. She did not last very long, as you might have imagined. (laughs) We got home. And on my answering machine, there was a million calls. It was red light, red light, red light. I play it, and it's my mother. And she's saying... I have a very bad feeling something has happened to you. Call me. The next one. I'm really, really scared. What's happening to you? What's going on? Where are you? And there were like 10 of these phone calls. Now, I called my mother back, and I said, oh, really? I was just um, away for work, and everything is fine. I'm not sure what you're um, talking about. Because I didn't really have the kind of relationship where I could talk to her really about my life or really about anything but what was so interesting to me was that I was still so connected I guess once you've been inside someone's womb somehow you're really connected my mother knew that something had happened to me and had I had the ability to tell her the story the way I'm telling you this story I think I would have said guess what ma I got away again The next storyteller will be
2: Tom.
3: um, We're waiting for a half hour on the wait list, which doesn't exist here. Uh, We get here, and it's all sold out, and my wife and I are, and two daughters are waiting, and then I come in, and the last second, throw my name in, and of course, that was two minutes ago, and now I'm the next one out of the box. (laughs) Planned? I don't know. Put a pressure. Anyway... So, five minutes? Yeah. Oh, I don't know if we have that. All right, um, I guess, uh, disclaimer, I, I read, uh, I'm on vacation, I'm not thinking about dates here, I'm also a school teacher, so I'm not thinking about dates once July, June 23rd comes and I'm done with my students, so it's summertime, I don't know what night of the week it is, so I accidentally was looking at the, uh, at the uh, mosquito thing and it said, in the flesh. So I'm gonna try to create in the flesh in some way into it, on the run. So to do, it. I don't know who's holding up the scorecards. I don't even know what that means because I came in so late. So let's work with that. Um, I uh, I have two daughters. I have a 19-year-old who just finished her freshman year at college and a 16-year-old who's looking at colleges. And uh, we just took her, my older one, Julia, down to down to school in Philadelphia, down at Penn, and. Uh, moved her into her room. She wanted a single. uh, And uh, for many reasons, she needed a single. And it was a good thing. And her single literally was seven and a half feet by 12 feet long. And uh, moving in was amazingly challenging with four of us in there and too much furniture and everything. And uh, as we were moving her in, I also went to UPenn uh, 30 years ago. I just had my 30th reunion. And uh, so it was really special to have her go there and, uh, and be part of that kind of, of uh, history there. My father went there as well. And so I had, uh, moving, moving her in, uh, you get your key and you have this and, and the doors lock. And the doors lock once, you, once your dorm door locks. I mean, back when I my day... Doors were open, but not the dorm doors, but the the doors to the dorm. So now everything's locked, you have to have a special pass key and get in. But I remember she had this keychain, and where are you gonna put your keys? Because if you lock yourself out of your room, you could be in a little bit of trouble. It brought me back 30 years to my freshman year and I had a single uh, in a different part of the quadrangle where where I was. And uh, it was the first week of school. I, maybe because I have a hippie brother who's seven years older than me and just have an open family where bathrooms are always open and people are doing their thing and say, hi, mom, what's up? And it's no, no, uh, no real, nudity is no big deal. And um, so I sleep in, often sleep in the nude. Um, and uh, in college, I had a single. It was really no different. And I don't know what happened. I woke up. I woke up, it's the first week of school in my dorm room, and I woke up in the hallway. I went to the bathroom, and uh, I didn't wake up in the hallway. I, I didn't sleepwalk. I, I went to the bathroom, and as soon as I walked out of the door, I ran back to my door and click. And I'm this, and you think these are lights, the fluorescent lights of this hall in Franklin, third floor. It was, I felt like I was in one of those you know, alien scenes where it's like, boom, and you're on a table. I was nude, it was barren, and I knew nobody. It was day three. I mean, I knew a few people. Co-ed hall, very co-ed, co-ed bathrooms. I don't know what time it was either. It was just bathroom time. So I'm just like, well, you know, there's no one there, and I'm freaking out a little bit, so I, I, I go to the bathroom, because that was priority one. <sighs> And then I, you know, thinking that, oh, the door maybe is open when I get back. It's locked. It's sealed. And, you know, I barely know people's names, girl here, tw- two girls here, you know, double there, single here, and I'm, uh, I'm in trouble. I'm nude and I'm in trouble. <laughs> Often that's not a bad thing, but this time it is. Uh, so I go to the one guy I kinda know, and he's he's not just on the hall, he's at the way end of the hall, through two doors, you know, to the to the stairway where who knows what else, all the way at the end, and his name's Zev, Z-E-V. He's like 6'3, he's big. I think the first time I met him, I heard him blasting uh, the Who, one of them, uh, Bob O'Reilly on this stereo system that I could only imagine owning one day. And he's, you know, he's welcoming himself to, to his dorm, you know, first day of school, blasting this thing, and I walk in there, he's got albums all over the place, and I'm like, oh, Zev. Turns out he lives kind of near me, so we, we get along a little bit, but I barely know him. Tap, 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 Zev. Knock, 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 Zev. Let me in, I'm naked. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, little harder. Zev, I'm naked. <laughs> Now, I'm thinking to myself, if I'm on the other side of the door and this guy, you know, day two or whatever shows up 30 years ago, what, okay, maybe it's time to hit the who again and really open up things and let the doors open and let everyone hear what's going on and see who's in the hall naked. So, you know, finally I hear this rumbling, ooh, that's how Zeb talks even today. And what's that? Oh, that's my limit? Anyway. (laughs) So I got another minute, I guess, 30 seconds or so. Anyway, so Zev finally lets me in, and I'm just, you know, I bump. I don't even give him a chance to see that I am naked. I bump in, I get in there, I grab whatever I can. I'm like, I'm naked. I spend the night on Zev's floor. Uh, We became friends, and uh, (laughs) and we're still friends today, which is kind of cool. Uh, And uh, I guess when I was thinking about my daughter, you know, potentially hearing that click herself, whether she sleeps in the nude or not, which I don't think you do, Julia, back there. And I think about Eliza heading off in, uh, you know, two summers from now, this time next summer, knowing she's heading off. You never know how scary it is. I mean, we've all been there, many of us, and some of the kids in the audience don't know yet. It's scary when you go off to college and you think who you're going to meet, what's going to happen, and how you're going to meet your friends. And... uh, and uh, take every opportunity, whether uh, whether it's you know in a class or on a field or in the gym or in the uh, hallway, in the you know barest of bare nudity you can be in. Uh, take every experience as it goes, and that's uh, that's how it goes. Sav, I'm naked. <laughs> Thank you.
4: Let's have a round of applause for Mr. Jerry Riley.
5: When I'm on the run, there's one thing I always need, and I need a lot of it, coffee. Gotta have my coffee. Now, you know, I like Starbucks, big fan, but my go-to coffee would be Dunkin' Donuts because they're ubiquitous. You know, if you're on the run, on the road, moving around, they're on every corner. So I'm a regular, get my big cup of coffee. uh, And usually it's just the coffee, but once in a while, get a donut. Maybe a coconut, maybe a butternut, cinnamon I like, uh, double chocolate, it's kind of good. But you will never, ever, ever see me eating a jelly stick donut you won't see my brothers or my sisters either. It's not time. <laughs> so, a number of years ago, my father was, uh, he was pretty old, uh, but he was in good health. Uh, but he was getting frail. Uh, you know, but he was doing okay. And he fell down in, the, in his living room, caught the corner of, the, of the, coffee, uh, the coffee table, and he broke a rib. And, uh, you know, took him to the hospital. Now I broke a rib about a year ago, and it hurt like hell, but you know, it's, it, it heals, they bandaged up, and you, you know, and you're fine. But when you're old and frail, sometimes things aren't that simple. So he spent the night in the hospital, and the next day there was a complication, then there was another complication, and then it just kind of spiraled. And he was in the hospital for five weeks, and it just kept getting worse and worse and drugs are interacting and this, and he's going downhill, it's terrible. At about the five week mark, my mom came in one morning, she walks through the door and instantly she knew something was going on. He's sitting up for the first time, sitting up in his bed, he's bright eyed, he's lucid. Um, and best of all, he's, he's feeling good and he's in a good mood. And he says, it's the best I've felt since I came in this damn place. And my mother says, what, um, is there anything I can get for you? And he said, since I woke up this morning, I've been thinking about a Dunkin' Donuts jelly stick. And she said, well, I'll go get one. those Dunkin' Donuts right across the street. There always is Dunkin' Donuts across the street. So she went and got him a big coffee and Dunkin' Donuts, brought it back, and, uh, and he ate that bad boy from end to end, and, uh, and he savored every bite of that jelly stick donut and washed it down with a big cup of coffee and he was a happy man. And he died less than 24 hours later. Now, my family, you know, we're kind of on the ball. and We put two and two together <laughs> and realized this was death by jelly stick. <laughs> so a few years later, uh, my mom, a good while later, my mom uh, got sick with cancer, and she did pretty well. For about a year, she was doing great. But eventually, it kind of caught up to her, and. Uh, and she started a decline, and, um, and she was at home, and uh, you know, we had nurses coming in, and she was nearby, I used to go over every day. And I came in this day, and, and uh, I said, how you doing? And my mom was real stoic. Um, you know, She wasn't a complainer, but this day she said, I, I am just doing it horrible. I just, I've got pain like I never had. I've never felt this bad in my life. I, I just feel terrible. And then there was a slight pause, And she said, but it's not time for the jelly stick. (laughs) So, you know, I think I've got many more good years ahead of me. I sure hope I do. But you know, all of us, sooner or later, your days run out. And uh, whenever that is, hopefully many years from now, in my final days, I want to be surrounded by my loved ones. And I want to have a big cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee by my side, and I want to have a jelly stick because uh, America runs on Duncan, (laughs) But the Rileys, we die by jelly sticks. (laughs) And and, uh, by the way, I brought a bag of jelly sticks, so Intermission, come find me. If you dare, have one. Jody. Jody. Yahoo!
6: Go right, go right. Go right. Go. Hello. <laughs> okay, so um, it starts in 2007. I take my first trip to Provincetown. I'm married, yes, to a man at this point. Um, 30 years of marriage. Um, I go with some friends, they have an extra room. I know what's going to happen. I get there and um, Met someone the next day, fell in love, decide okay, I'm gonna finally get out of the closet and fill the rest of my life with what I should be doing, um, the shoulda couldas, and so I plot this whole thing, what it's gonna look like, how it's gonna go down, and you know, for whatever reason, this other person, you know, this is who I've always been. I've always looked like this. I was always fixing cars, chopping down trees, but, you know, I had that other life. And um, and so I decide, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. I have to do this. Um, and at the time, the person that I was hoping to, you know, become my partner um, was very good about it. You know, she said, I'm, I'm not going to be a mistress. There was nothing that happened between us. We were just really good friends. But it was like fast and furious. Like, I was in love with her. And so I said, you know, it's it's got to happen within the next year. And so we had taken a trip up to Vermont. And I thought, okay, my aunts at the time um, were going to be my scapegoat because it was an abusive marriage for those thirty years. And you know, you don't know until you're in it um, what it really looks like. And so I I plan out this whole thing with them. They're gonna I'm going to take some of the money in my account and like tuck it away so that when I leave because I don't know what's going to happen, you know how it's going to go down. I'm hoping it's going to be civil and that I'm going to get through this and move on my you know move on with my new life. And so, you know, we set everything up so that like my account is all up in Vermont where they live and I have a safe house that I'm going to go to when it goes down and um and so, you know, I met these people on the train that I was that I came up to Provincetown with, and they lived very close. And but they were scared that if I went to their place, that um, he knew where they lived, so that wasn't going to be a safe place. So I had this other place that was going to be my safe house when I was going to leave. Um, and so I, um, so it's it's uh, it's July. It's July. 21st, and I'm a big fan of jazz, and I used to always go, I, I grew up in Connecticut, I used to go to the New Haven Jazz Festival on the Green, and it was just my summer thing to do, and so I packed up my picnic basket and my blanket, and I'm listening, it was, um, it was David Brubeck that had come to town when he was still alive, and, um, and so I'm listening to this wonderful jazz music, and I'm like, tonight's the night, tonight's the night I'm going to tell him that I'm leaving, and that I just can't do this any longer. And so I'm still thinking, like, this is going to be civil. He's going to understand that, you know, we've had a tough marriage the whole time. It was never really, you know, it was definitely not roses. It didn't smell like roses ever, um, but... um and so I decide, okay, tonight's the night. So I get home from this concert, and, you know, I'm high. This was, I'm high on life. I'm, I'm sober, but I was high on life, and it's, you know, it was just a great time, and, um, and so I decide that this is it. I'm going to say, you know, I'm sorry. This isn't working out any longer, but I need to leave, and um, I hope that we can do this, you know, in a, in a civil way. Totally did not happen that way. Um, my ex um, was a big, gun-toting Harley-Davidson Tattooed, six foot four, um, two hundred and seventy five pound man, um, and he decides that he's going to kill me and kill himself. Um, and so, prior to this, I had taken most of the guns and hid them away. And um, you know, because I'm working up to this time and thinking it could happen. He could. He could decide that he's going to kill me. And so, you know, I forgot there was one gun left. He had a man cave in the basement with all the fancy crap, the big screen TV and all this crap. Um, And I forgot that there was one gun that he kept under the couch where he hung out. And so he reaches for the gun and I don't know how, but I wrestle this person and I get the gun away and I go to get out of the house and I don't have shoes, and I don't have my car keys. And all I kept saying was, I got to get my shoes in my head, and I got to get the keys. I got to get my shoes, and I got to get the keys. And so I finally get out of the house, and you know there was a lot of scruffling and bullshit that went down. Um, but I get in my car, and I close the door real quick, and I roll up the windows, and I feel like, this is it. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And I fly ass out of the driveway, and I go up to the local fire station. And that was my safe place, because I had nowhere else to go. You know, and the cops come and it was just a big, big clusterfuck. And, um, but I'm here, and you know, when I first moved to Provincetown, friends used to take pictures and I'd say, I'm sorry, but I'm in the witness protection program. And like, I would laugh about it. I'm like, don't take pictures of me. So we have this great photo the first Christmas. Um, a lot of us used to get together at this house. We called it the Porch House. Somebody was renting, and it was a great, great house for gatherings. And we were having a potluck, and it was around Christmas. And I'll never forget, because they have this picture with the whole gang is there, all my girls are there, and there's me, and someone cropped in the head of Ellen DeGeneres, because, <laughs> because I was, and I still today, you know, he doesn't know where I am, thank God, it's been nine and a half years, um, I'm safe, and I just like to put this out there that, you know, keeping it silent, you know, perpetuates the, the, the abuse so you know you can't be silent about it so if anyone you know knows of anyone that's in a, in a, in a situation you know we have to talk about it so thanks everyone
7: alright so next to the stage please welcome Jennifer Stratton
2: Stratton Jennifer so I moved to the Cape about 20 years ago. I'm originally from New Jersey, just outside New York City. And I always had a really heavy foot when it came to driving. So when I lived in New Jersey, I got pulled over quite a bit for speeding. And it wasn't because I was like, you know, I really relished going fast or I was some kind of like rebel without a cause. It's just unconscious driving. Like I just would all of a sudden, I'm going 80 or 90 and getting pulled over. So when I moved to the Cape, this lovely trait came with me. And um, I got, shortly after moving here, I got a really interesting job working for a kids' entertainment company, so basically, that meant that I would dress up as a clown, or a princess, or a mermaid, or a pirate, or whatever the situation called for, and I had to drive all over the place, going to parties and business openings and singing telegrams. And so, um, one of my first jobs, I was in—I was dressed as a clown, and I had—I was on my way. I had to do the Cape Cod dinner train. I had to do a gig on the dinner train in Hyannis. So I'm driving from Orleans, and. Um, Once, you know, kind of flying a bit by the seat of my pants, running a little bit late, um, you know, stress, drama, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, I realize I'm getting pulled over by a cop. And I'm like, oh, shit, I got to make the dinner train. I'm dressed in full clown. That means, like, full white face. I got the wig. I got everything. So the cop comes, you know, pulls me over. He looks in. He doesn't even bat an eyelash, like, nothing. And I'm like, C- you know, come on, like a little sense of humor. Anyway, I just sit there, and I t- I'm like, look, you know, I'm, I'm late for a train. And he said, yeah, I'd really like to see your license. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, it's, it's not going to look anything like me. <laughs> but here you go. And so he takes, and I think, I'd, see, I'd already gotten pulled over once before since moving here, and I got a warning. So I'm thinking, this is it, you know, this is where I get the ticket. He comes back, very seriously, like just nothing, and he's, he's like, you better slow down. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you so much. And I'm like, wow, I really like this state, you know, like I just got another warning. Um, anyway, I make it to the train, the gig goes really well, and um, so fast forward a little bit, I'm, I'm on another gig. Now I'm dressed as a princess. So i um, off to some party as a princess, once again running a bit by the seat of my pants, always a little bit late, going a little too fast. I get pulled over. I'm like, shit, this is going to be it. So the cop comes round, and he's a little more, you know, human. He has, he's, 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 you know, asked me, well, where are you going? I'm like, I'm party. This is what I do. And he goes back to check and I'm just waiting for the ticket and he comes back and he's like, look, you know, I just can't give a ticket to a princess. I've got two daughters at home. He's like, but you better slow down. I'm like, thank you. Thank you so much. Make it to the gig. And um, it goes really well, whatever. So now fast forward a little bit more. It's Christmas time. I'm dressed as an elf. So, I'm going to a, um, heads, a, a a Christmas party for a Head Start program for kids. Once again, running just a little bit late, going a little bit too fast, I get pulled over. This time, the cop comes around, and he's like, what is it with you elves? And I'm thinking, <laughs> he must have pulled over my friend Eileen, who also works for the same company. <laughs> So I'm thinking, this is it. I'm definitely getting the ticket this time. Goes back, does his thing, comes back. He's like, hands me the warning. He's like, you elves better slow down. (laughs) I'm like, thank you so much, sir. I will. We will. Um, And it was at that moment, I was like, oh, my God what's happening? I've got, you know, four warnings, not a ticket. And was at that moment, I just, it, something, I had one of those moments where I was just like, you know what? I'm going to slow down. <laughs> like, first of all, maybe I'm going to leave myself more time to get to where I'm going and I'm not going to speed anymore. What's the point? So it was kind of like just the grace. Grace had hit me and From then on, this was quite a while ago, I have not been pulled over for speeding. I drive much more mindfully. I never go more than five to eight miles over the speed limit, which is what they say you should do. And um, I just feel better for it. I don't work at that job anymore, but I do attribute part of what happened to me because of that job, because apparently police do not like giving tickets to people in costume. So anyway... I'm here to say that I'm a changed woman, and thank you so much. (laughs) All right,
6: Jill. Here we go.
1: (laughs) And uh, we were to LA, and then the next flight was going to be three hours later, and I was going to be in Hong Kong like a 1 1 a.m. flight to Hong Kong, and then from there, another wait, and then the flight to Denpasur in Bali, in Indonesia. Um, So we're coming down, we start the descent. I've had the natas noodles, sesame, (laughs) healthy vegetables, good. I had them about two hours into the flight. This is maybe another couple, I don't know, whatever it takes to LA. We're coming down, I am suddenly seized with an explosion through my entire body I cannot even tell you it was probably stuff coming out of my ears as well it was it was you don't want to be sick on a plane you don't want to be sick coming down when everyone is screaming at you to stay in your seat and you have to leave your seat and people were screaming at me as if I was endangering their lives because I was In the bathroom instead of in my seat. I mean, I was endangering my own life, perhaps, but that I was death in the bathroom would have been better than death in my seat. So um, or in the aisle. Okay, that this is the on the run part of the story. Um, So there's on the run part two that comes up now. So okay, fine. Uh, We get off the, the plane lands. I make it to the ladies room, I have three hours. I feel much better, by the way. <laughs> uh, and I knew it was the Natta's noodle, I mean, no question. So, food poisoning, I've had it before. So, um, I'm, I, I'm, but three hours later, I'm, in, I'm at the gate for the next flight, I'm excited, I'm cleaned up, I'm great, I'm feeling good. <laughs> Long time, took me a while. Um, and I, I'm trying to make this short, but okay. So I, um, on my flight, it's Air P- Cafe Pacific, I'm on, I, one of the first few on the plane, I, I'm on the plane, as I approach my seat, it comes over me again in that second. As I approach my seat, I am suddenly, there's more to come. There is, is yet more in me everywhere that has, there's somehow more. I, I, I contributed a lot in LA, in the air, there's more. I run for the bathroom and I'm practically the first person on the plane, it's a really nice clean one when you get on the plane right away, it's really perfect. And the stewardess sees me run for the bathroom really quickly, not even put my back, I just I don't know what I did with my backpack. And, and, she, and when I come out, um, feeling better again, I'm great now, now I really feel good. She, she takes me by the shoulder and she says, must leave plane, must leave plane. And I said, and she was not Chinese or anything, she just said that, must leave plane. <laughs> she thought I was Chinese, no, no. Okay, so um, suddenly I am on, I'm off the plane, and my luggage has been removed from the plane. Because apparently there are certain airports in the world, I didn't, never knew this before, but this is good for everyone here to listen to. You're not allowed to arrive sick, and if you do, the plane goes into quarantine for many hours, and it's horrible, and everybody hates you. It's really bad. Singapore, Taipei, I forget. Um, so um, they say, OK, that's fine. You're sick. We're sending you to a hotel. You, know, you, you can come back tomorrow night for the flight. You know, And somebody else gives me a boarding pass for the following night, 24 hours. So I felt pretty, I, I, w- I thought this is not so bad going to a, a hotel and actually not getting on a 12-hour flight to Hong Kong the way I look and feel. It's probably a good thing. So I get to the hotel, it's about two in the morning, fine, the next day, I, there's a laundromat at the hotel. Really good news. So I spent a lot of time, oh gosh, okay. So um, I get, it's gonna be much shorter than the week, you're not gonna hear about Bali at all. So uh, <laughs> I do get there, but you're not gonna hear about it. So um, I, I get back to the, 24 hours later, I'm ready, 11 o'clock, I'm at the gate. I go up to the gate and it's the same man I recognize him. I say, here I am, I'm great, you know, let me on the plane. I have my boarding pass and he looks at it and he says, he says, you can't get on the plane without a doctor's note. And I said, what are you talking about? A doctor's note, look at me, I'm great. I feel great. Look, I'm, I'm fabulous. It was food poisoning and, and he won't let me on the plane. And suddenly, and he says, no free hotel tonight. Tonight, you, you, know, you have to get a doctor's note to get on the flight. Now, I will admit that I did hear somebody say something about a doctor's note 24 hours earlier. I heard that, but I didn't get a piece of paper that said, do this, go here, do this, do this. So I had to spend yet another night in L.A. I got my doctor's note the next day, pay for my own hotel, and I did get to Bali. And that's, I'm going to wrap it up with that and save the rest of the world.
3: And next up, James. Hey,
7: hey folks, you're going to have to bear with me. Uh, I was in a motorcycle accident a couple of days ago, and uh, I'm OK. But I had to go to the hospital today and get my uh, nether regions ultrasound <laughs> for like an hour. <laughs> Just you know, there's no baby in there. All right, um, that bathroom, the handicap bathroom. Has anyone been in there? No. Nope. That's a nice bathroom, <laughs> right? I didn't even want to, I didn't want to (laughs) leave. Okay, um, this is kind of a serious story. Uh, About 28 years old, um, I'd been living in New Mexico for a while. Kind of bottomed out with alcohol. You know, I'm 28. And I was offered the job in Boston. A friend of mine uh, worked in this sort of radical therapeutic community uh, that was connected to the Department of Youth Services. And they dealt with kids in the Department of Youth Services, um, like the worst kids in the state. The kids that lockups couldn't handle, detentions couldn't handle. And this friend of mine who worked there, she said, I think you'd be really good at this you know as a counselor so i was like okay so i'm 28 sure i bought a 600 dollars car and i drove out and the whole deal was you you get kind of get trained while you're there and they observe and they make sure you're not you know they do a quarry and they you know they make sure you're at least semi-capable um so i started working at this place and these, it was maybe 20 kids, and it was in this little, like, colonial house in the suburbs outside of Boston. And nobody knew in the neighborhood what was really going on in here. They just figured, hey, I don't know. They, they didn't know what these kids had done. Um, and the interesting part about it was that there was, it was not a locked facility. And it was made clear to these kids when they came. This is sort of a last stop for these kids. Like, if you don't Deal with, if you don't work this out now, you're going to get locked up and you may never get out. Um, I mean, these kids, you know, murderers, rapists, arsonists, these kids had, you know, done some pretty horrific shit. Um, But they were kids. Other than these horrific things that they did, which which I understand now, anyone would do under those, the circumstances with which they had experienced. Um, so I started working there, and, you know, I got pretty good at it. Um, even though I was white and privileged, I actually had a lot in common with these kids. So uh, they would run these really radical group therapy sessions four times a week. You know, you get all these kids in a room. And the whole, it was very gestalt-oriented. You know, it was about getting them in touch with their rage, their grief, their trauma, you know, whatever the thing was. And, you know, there was this one kid. His name was Queasy. Yeah. And he looked like Ving Roms, but with no soul. Scary. Big, big dude. And he was in there because... He may or may not have shot some dude on a train, and our job was to find out whether he did or not. Sure. Um, there was another kid who had shotgunned his whole family. Mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, youngest brother. So it was an intense environment, to say the least. And, and I, like I say, I was really good at it. I lasted about three years. What brought me to my end, there was this one kid uh, who was assigned to me. I was his individual counselor. He was in there for, he was about 15 or 16. He was in there for sexually assaulting two young children. He was almost impossible to connect with. His affect was utterly and completely constricted. He, He hardly spoke. It was really hard to get anything out of him. And I, you know, I tried. I worked with him as much as I could. After about three months, he took off. Now, any kid could take off. That was the deal. Um, But if you take off, that's it. That's your last ride. You're going back into the system. And it's not a good one. It's gladiator school, really. So the kid takes off. When a kid runs, we contact the state police. And they sent a detective out, and me and the director of the program, we jump in, and we start going to the places where he may be. So we went to uh, his grandmother's house. He wasn't there. We drove around Roxbury. We did all this stuff. He wasn't there. Two weeks later, um, they found him. The state found him. And they decided we're going to cut him loose. We're going to let him go live with his grandmother. And we said, no, we, this is a bad idea. I mean, given his charges, given the lack of development, the lack of therapy that he's experienced, the lack of progress he's made, we really strongly disagree. But you know, the department of Youth service, it's all about money. It's all about beds. It's cut him loose. So they cut him loose. And uh, so this was like kind of the end of my working there. Uh, maybe three or four months later, I was sitting uh, in the staff room doing my notes, watching the news, and there he was. All of a sudden, there he was on the news. He had uh, sexually assaulted a young child and came to his head in with a brick killed him. And maybe a month later, I just, that was it. I burned out. it It was just an ocean of stuff that I just had about as much as I could take. Anyway, that's it, folks.
3: Okay. Matt Cecil. Matt, Matt Cecil? Cecil? Yeah. Matt? Yeah.
8: <laughs> banana, banana. I've been called worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's not a lot of lights. I think um, as an adult, you know, I look back at growing up and I, I realize kind of how privileged of a, of a life I had as a kid. But I think when, you, when you're when you a kid and you live in the suburbs and you have everything, it seems kind of boring. Um, and you look for things to do, places to go. I would disappear in the woods for hours and days. I would go on trips, uh, you know, like out of the country, all over the place. And I think um, when my, uh, my friend Adam asked me if... Uh, When I was 19 years old, we were in college, he asked me if I wanted to go to Alaska for the summer with him. Um, I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. I have no idea what I'm going to do, but that sounds great. And I think, um, I I usually think that like uh, people like to hang out with me or whatever, but I think it was mostly because I had um, a car that worked. (laughs) Um, Not only did I have a car, but I had a 1987 Buick Electra station wagon, yeah. Yeah, no, seriously, and it had the um, the simulated wood siding, um, and the 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 velvet or velour. I'm not really even sure what the difference is, to be honest with you. Like the the uh, the interior was unbelievable. <laughs> so, so I, again, I like to think it was because you know we wanted to go on this adventure together. But I also noticed his car wasn't working at all. Now that I think about it. So with plenty of room in the station wagon, um, our friend uh, Brooks decided to come along as well. And so um, I don't think my parents were very surprised that I wanted to go either. Um, I think they, they knew that I, I didn't really fit in a lot of places and um, that I would jump at an opportunity to do something like this. And I was independent enough that I don't think they care. But my mom, um, you know, my dad, <laughs> my dad went and he took a razor blade and he scraped off all the Grateful Dead stickers off my car. Um, and he was like, you're just going to get a ticket. Um, <laughs> and then they're going to take you to jail. Um, and and my, mom, my mom was kind of a safety freak. Um, and so she gave me um, a, a, a thing of mace because a lot of people at that time, I grew up in New Jersey. Someone else from New Jersey. Um, yeah. Uh, um, and, and so a lot of people have been getting carjacked. And so she gave me a thing of mace to put under the seat because, you know, you get carjacked in Wyoming. And, um, and, and she gave me this hammer, um, this designed specifically for breaking glass, um, because she had heard on the, the news about this family who had driven off a road into a river, um, and the car sunk, and they were unable to get out, and the person on, on the news told, her, told them, told her specifically, that if they had just had something that they could use to break the window, the whole family would be alive today. Um, so she gave me a hammer um, with this like, kind of pointed end to it and a, and a can of mace to stick under the, the seat. And that was it. No, uh, no cash, no nothing. Just uh, <laughs> just go drive 4,000 miles, enjoy yourself. So, so we, we drive across country. Cars loaded down, bikes, climbing gear, all sorts of stuff. We figured this will be the adventure in itself going out. We realized we have to drive all the way through the United States, all the way up into Canada. We're going to Juneau, Alaska. I don't know if anyone has ever been there before. Seriously? You know how many people come every day on a cruise ship? I know, right? Um, so, um, so anyway, so Juneau, Alaska is the capital of Alaska, but there's no roads in or out of it. It's not that the roads are crappy or that you can't drive them certain times. There are physically no roads in or out of town, which is a whole other story altogether. Um, but so what you have to do is have to drive all the way up into Canada, all the way back down into Alaska to a town, either Skagway or Haynes, are both within Southeast Alaska, and you have to take a put the car on a ferry boat, and it's about an eight-hour ferry ride um, to Juneau. So as we drive up and through um, Montana and some other places, absolutely gorgeous, you know, and we realized we're gonna have to cross the border at some point, and this is, you know, this is the 90s, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal back then. But we realized that there's things in the car you know, that would get us in trouble. So we're in Montana, we're in Glacier National Park, and we figured, all right, let's throw everything into, that we have in the car that may be illegal or that we're gonna get in trouble for at the border. So we put it all into a big thing of pasta. Um, (laughs) And we camp out, and we have this amazing night, and I see northern lights for the first time in my life. I I guess I'm yeah. I may or may not have, but I not the not the last time, but certainly the first time. Um, So we go up to the border, and um, I know for sure there's nothing in the car. We literally just like I mean it was a great night, you know. And we drive up, and I know there's nothing in the car. And so we get up there, and the first thing we ask, you know, very friendly. It's 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 Canada, so they're very friendly. And the woman at the at the front at the little gate says, um, she goes, oh, do you have any you know any firearms? And we're like, no. No, do you have any like um, any mace or you know bear spray or anything like that? And I was like, Oh yeah, I got a thing of mace right here under my seat, you know, in case I get hide you know, carjacked, or whatever. And um, you know, I thought my mom would be proud. So they, she goes, Well, you can't bring that into this country. I was like, okay, and she's like, we can get rid of it, or you can you can have you can come back through and you can pick it back up. It's like I don't I don't want it. I'll just come in and get rid of it. She's like, all right, come inside. We fill out the paperwork and we just get rid of it for you. Fantastic. So I pull over, and out comes three big border patrolmen, two guys and a woman. And they basically, you know, like so I, I'm I'm at this point thinking all I'm doing is going in and getting rid of uh, the mace. So I put it in my pocket, and I go up to, I go up to. Uh, to, to go get rid of it. And the guy's like, back in the car, son. And so they start going through the car. They start ripping everything apart. Um, and they're basically, because we have long hair, I have a beard, all this other stuff, they're basically like looking for where the drugs are in the car. And I'm like, there are no drugs in this car. you know I don't know what you have to do to look. And he's like, well, we have to call the dogs in. We have to have them sniff the car. It's going to take six to eight hours. Also, and I'm like, well, then call them in, because there's no drugs in this car. And he's like, well, I need you guys all behind this table. And I was like, okay. So we all get out of the car. We're standing there. They're going through everything, pulling, like, just tons of stuff out of the car. I have no idea how we're going to get it back in. And so basically, he's going through all this stuff, and he's like, I, went, I need you guys to all empty your pockets, and we're going to search you. And we're like, fantastic. So my buddy takes out, like, he has, like, a, like a pocket knife, because we've been camping the whole time. And the guy's like, one guy's like, we got a knife. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, I'm like, all right. And so they're like, they're sniffing it and doing all this other stuff. And the woman's going through a journal in the car. And she comes out, and she's like, what's this? Puts it on the table. And all it says is, my friend wrote, smoked a huge joint and then threw everything else in the pot. <laughs> Great night. <laughs> Last entry. Last entry in the journal. So I'm like, Awesome. So I'm like, I, I'd love to tell you there's five pounds of marijuana under the seat just to get out of here, but there isn't. So he literally, like, you know, he's like, all right, you're next. Empty your pockets. And I go, oh, I have a can of mace in my pocket. Because he's like, all right, all right. <laughs> and puts his, puts his hand on the gun and says, take it out of your pocket slowly. And I'm like, No. <laughs> You know, I've i taken intro to Soch. like, no, like this is how things happen. I said, you can come over and take it out of my pocket. So he comes over and takes that out of my pocket and puts it on the table. I'm like, I'm like, oh my mother is gonna oh. And so anyway, so so after a while, they read through everything, they search the entire card and there's nothing. And he goes he goes, Well, it looks like your story checks out. Have a good time, enjoy Alaska. And I was like, oh so we finally get up into Alaska gorgeous, love it. Obviously, no one's ever been there. Go, it's, it's wonderful. So I go for this job interview, and the woman asked me, she goes, you know, a lot of people that come to Alaska are either running from something or running to something. So which one are you? And I kind of was like, I never really thought about that before. And I said, you know, I think probably for the first time in my life, I may be running to something. Thank you.
0: And our last storyteller for the lovely evening
4: is Meryl Cohen. So I was in my 20s, having one of those existential crises that you really can only, like, you perfect in your 20s, kind of a dark night of the soul where everything is kind of going wrong, and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. I had a job that was only supposed to be while I was in graduate school, but it was the worst job because I was selling advertising space to used car dealers. (laughs) Imagine how easy that was. And my graduate school, I was in a dramatic writing program, and I realized that all I was learning was how not to write, and I was completely blocked. And I had a girlfriend who I was in love with, who every, like, three or four days, Uh, would tell me that she actually, um, I'm not really a lesbian, I just love you. (laughs) So it was not a good period of time. And really what I wanted to do was run away from my life, and I was a little bit stuck, and I had uh, stopped drinking a couple of years before, and I had a few sober friends who would tell me that I, you know, really what you should do is you should pray. And I was like, what am I gonna pray for? I'm not gonna do that. And finally I was like so miserable that I was like, okay, And then I was like, God, give me a fucking sign. That was not a wise thing to say. Okay, so uh, a few days later, I'm at my advertising sales job, and I'm supposed to meet a friend for lunch, and I'm uh, I'm on Long Island in a town called Baldwin, and he's in Mineola, 20 minutes away, and he says, "Um, don't come, because the weather is terrible. And I said, oh, come on, don't be a wimp or whatever. And I had this... 1977 Caprice classic that I had inherited from my grandfather who pretended to be a cop, so it had sirens and stuff <laughs> like that. He was actually convinced that he was a cop. When I went to visit him in Florida, he was a plumber, okay? He retired from a business as a plumber, but everyone called him Captain Bill. And he said, if anybody says I'm a cop, don't say anything. Okay. So now I have this car that has a siren and has all these other like cop features and handcuffs and stuff. And um, I decide I'm going to visit my friend because this car has made it through Hurricane Gloria when I had broken up with my other girlfriend and I had to go visit her in the middle of the hurricane. So of course I could make it to see my friend for lunch. So I get onto the highway and now this would be a point where I realized that I should have had Matt's mother and you'll find out why but anyway so I'm in my car I'm driving it's fine it's gray it's dark it's cloudy but suddenly I reach a point where not only is it pouring but it has been pouring for a long time and the roads are completely flooded and I think okay well I will get off that's what you do you get off the highway so I'm on the Meadowbrook Parkway I pull into the right lane I'm trying to get off the highway and my car starts filling up with water Complete, like it's coming in from underneath, it's coming in from the gas pedal, it's coming in. Within a matter of two or three minutes, I am kneeling on the car seat with water like up to my neck. I mean, because it has been raining in that spot for a long time. So I can't open the doors. It's a, now it is a river. The highway has become a river because it, uh, the, um, the drainage system cannot handle the volume of rain. So I try to open the windows. I have electric windows, of course. I'm pressing on the button and, and, and turning the ignition. And every time I turn the ignition, I get a shock, and the window's not going down. Uh, so I don't know what to do. I can hear my heart beating in the car. I try to kick out the windshield. I can't. It's very hard to kick out a windshield, which is why that device that Matt was talking about would be very handy. <laughs> But I had nothing. I mean, I had no hammer. I had no tools. I was working for a newspaper. I had a bunch of newspapers. That's about <laughs> it. Um, finally, what happened was I kept, I just, I mean, I just, ha- I tried all of the windows to kick them. None of them worked. I kept hitting the, uh, turning the ignition, and finally there was a moment where it caught for a few seconds, and I was much thinner than than I am now, and I was able to kind of squeeze out the window, and there were you know, cars stopped next to me. There was a guy in a big truck who was saying, Ladies, stay in your car. If you get out of your car, you're gonna drown. But I knew if I stayed in my car I was going to drown. So the water was rushing by. I grabbed a highway marker to see to try to see how how deep it was. And I knew that at that point it was over my head. So I kind of swam for I swam off the exit and then I waited. <laughs> Uh, and that night, by the way, on the news all night long, they, I saw my car bobbing up and down. <laughs> my grandfather's Caprice Classic. And all night long they were saying, a woman was seen swimming out of her car on the Meadowbrook Parkway. And my father had his moment of fame the next morning because this radio station kept saying it, and he called and got interviewed, so he was really excited. <laughs> So when I finally got off the exit swam and then waited and then I ran because I was like I couldn't believe I was alive. I mean it was this moment where I was thinking, you know, like it's it's weird where your mind goes in these moments, but I was thinking when I was hearing my heartbeat in the car that my mother was going to get the message that I had drowned on the Meadowbrook Parkway and how weird this was. So I run into this office building and when I go in, all these people come out of their offices into the lobby and I'm standing there and there's this pool of water that has, I guess I've absorbed a lot. <laughs> and I spread like this 20-foot <laughs> circumference around me um, of water. So what ended up happening was that uh, with all this and realizing that I was still alive, I, without thinking about it, like I, I registered to go back to school and I, um, you know, was finally done with that girlfriend who really wanted to be with a man. And I just, um, you know, got rid of my job. And I realized, like, a week or two later that suddenly things had started to fall into, this pla- in, into place. Um, but that really what I needed to pray for was not to need anything so dramatic to happen. And whatever you do, do not say, God, please give me a fucking sign. That was my lesson. <laughs> Thank
0: you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theater Company, Vanessa Vardabedian, and Caitlin Langstaff. Find your next opportunity to join us at facebook.com slash mosquitostoryslam and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on soundcloud.com. You can also find us on
1: iTunes. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.